Hello and welcome to Hide He Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we're back on our grind following the life of Alexander the Great, continuing the series within the series dedicated to the various facets of his military skills and career. We've discussed the smaller battles of Alexander's campaigns and his early campaigns against the Illyrians and other, other tribal nations, the Greeks and Thebes, and the Battle of the Granicus. We also dove into the Battle of Issus, and most recently, of course, hit on the Siege of Tyre. Today we're going to be discussing the Siege of Gaza, another impressive siege of Alexander against a formidable foe that took daring and ingenuity and a lot of engineering success to win. But, be- but before we get into that, a few reminders, please, and requests, I guess, from you lovely listeners out there. If you haven't already, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at Podcast, all one word, and to follow the show on Twitter at Podcast. Also, be sure to drop those five-star ratings, those five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice, particularly, I think, most of y'all out there use Apple and Spotify to listen, so be sure to hammer those apps with the five stars. Don't know if it matters at this point, you know, I've been cutting up at this a little bit, but I do believe that every little bit helps, so... You know, appreciate everybody out there that has left a review and appreciate everyone that continues to do so. Thanks. Also, be sure to also, also, here's a reminder that in addition to High Tea Obsessed, I've been on Words and Whiskey for their last eight ish episodes talking about the Greenbone Saga, which is definitely one of my three favorite series of all time. And it is by none other than the wonderful Fonda Lee. Other two favorite series, Red Rising, number one, and then possibly two, possibly three, is The Faithful and The Fallen by John Wynn. So, I think this is the best series I've ever read, and it's, you know, urban fantasy, really good, really amazing. It's not necessarily my favorite, it's top three though, so very much beloved by myself. It's been a lot of fun doing that, so if you're a big reader like I am, if you're a fan of sci-fi or fantasy, I implore you to read these books. And then I suggest, I recommend you catch up with us over on Words and Whiskey as we chop it up, we discuss, and we break down everything that makes this series so wonderful. We just wrapped up book one. We're moseying on over to book two, actually recording the first episode on book two today when you're listening to this. Cannot wait to get into it. It is excellent. It is amazing. Final reminder, as we move into the summer here, you know, spring just started in a little warm out there. My next season going to be focused on women in history, ideally understudied women in history, and or movements or events in history that are or should be or should have been oriented on women in the past but haven't been discussed this way. Joined by the wise and wonderful Cassie, aka Sharkbait, aka Sharkbait's bookshelf, if you know her from Instagram, and so she's going to be joining me for that, and though we're still in the development and scheming phases of that season, we cannot wait to get going and putting that out there for all of you. Why am I bringing it up here now? Well, we've got a little in our episodes pretty soon. And so I wanted to do one last push to canvas this audience out there, all you listeners. Any suggestions you got before we do that? So, you know, we're going to lock in around 10-ish episodes, maybe a little more. And we would love to get a wide net of suggestions that we can then narrow down to some of our favorites. 
Also, I'm pretty sure we have our subheading dash name for that season all but decided at this point, but be sure to be on the lookout for polls on Instagram to help us decide what we're going to call this little adventure. Another good, dare I say, great reason to follow the show over on Instagram. But I think that wraps up the non-Alexander content, the news I have for all of you out there, the reminders, all that good stuff. And I suppose that it's time, without any further ado, to get into today's episode. So right up front, let me get out ahead of this here. Compared to the Siege of Tyre, we don't know that much about the Siege of Gaza, which is something, quite frankly, I forgot when planning this episode, and when I made the decision not to include it in last week's episode. So this is going to be another quick episode this week, but because of that, I will be getting the Battle of Dogmella episode out to you all next week and not two weeks from now. For narrative reasons, I'm also going to be skipping or glossing over some of the events between Tyre and Gaza, because I think narratively it makes more sense if we include it next week, and I also think it will hit harder from like a listening perspective if we do it that way. Also, some of the events after Gaza we'll touch on, but then again, more detail next time. Last week, we left Alexander and the Macedonians as conquerors of Tyre, an island city of the Phoenicians famed for being unconquerable. They also may or may not have crucified 2,000 of the, Ty- of the Tyrians on the shore as a symbol of what would happen to those who stood against them. Likely, Darius III had been hoping the city would hold Alexander for longer than the six months it managed to, so that he could continue building out his army in order to build like a giant massive army once again to face down his foe, Alexander. Now, following the defeat, Darius III would send Alexander his second letter following the Battle of Issus. Again, this is what I'll get into more detail next week. But essentially, Darius offered Alexander a deal and money in exchange for the royal family and the land Alexander conquered. Alexander refuses it. This refusal left Alexander with a few choices to make. He could turn away from the shore and head inland to hunt Darius and the Persians. But this choice was rife with risk. Persia was a massive nation, even though Alexander had conquered large swaths of it at this point, and more or less wandering into the heartland of the empire, or the very least regions more firmly under the thumb of Persian rule, was a recipe for disaster. A lot could go wrong. He doesn't really know where Darius is. These regions aren't loyal to Alexander in any way. He could be ambushed. You know, the locals are going to be harder to win over. Dicey. Also, it would be super hard also would be much harder to maintain lines of communication and supply marching inland than it would be along the coast, where both letters and supplies could be ferried by ship. So ultimately, Alexander decided, or perhaps this was the plan all along, but regardless, Alexander continues into Egypt. As the army marched south, Hephaestion, making, making one of his rare early appearances in the sources as a commander, as a leading figure, he leads the fleet south along the coast. Presumably, he's, you know, gathering supplies, but also the fleet is carrying the heavy siege equipment, which was too large and heavy to transport over land that was used at Tyre. Plus, it didn't really make sense for the army to, you know, waste their time, waste their energy carrying this stuff unless they needed it. Gaza was the last large settlement between Alexander and the desert path into Egypt, and despite the warning that was the fate of Tyre, the leader of Gaza was resolute in his decision to hold out against the invaders. As Stephen English notes in his book, The Sieges of Alexander the Great, Gaza was the principal frontier fortress of the Persian Empire in that region, around 240 kilometers south of Tyre and 4 kilometers inland from the coast. For years, it had stood guarding the Persian heartlands from aggression from an often recalcitrant Egypt 
and now it stood directly in Alexander's path into Egypt. Unquote. 240 kilometers is about 150 miles, and 4 kilometers is about 2.5 miles. Just to round out that distance for us Americans out there. The Macedonians reached Gaza in September of 332 BCE, and there they found a city atop an artificial hill that had formed over time, standing about 250 feet tall, with tall, sturdy walls atop the hill surrounding the city. It also been anticipating the siege, and so it was well supplied. The defense forces were commanded by a man named Battis, who also might have been the governor of the region. He also might have been just like the governor of the city. Possibly a eunuch, though that may have been ancient Greek and Roman racism against the Persians playing a hand here, you know, adding to the mysticism. Because they had that weird mystic obsession with units going on, plus it may have been an attempt to cast the Persians as effeminate and womanish, however. It wasn't unheard of for a unit to be in command of large fighting forces, cities, or even regions in ancient Persia, so we cannot be certain. It definitely could have been a unit. Or he definitely could have been a unit. Though our sources may seek to disparage him, Battis would prove a loyal servant of Darius III and a fairly formidable foe for Alexander and the Macedonians. So as I mentioned, Gaza, city atop a hill surrounded by walls, which meant it was difficult to storm because invaders would have to march uphill against determined and entrenched defenders. Further complicating matters, the areas around the hill had very soft sand that apparently made it more difficult to use siege engines, because they would get bogged down uh, and kind of sink into the sand. So again, testifying to the innovative nature and brilliance of Alexander and his team of engineers, the Macedonians built large mounds of their own, enabling them to get their siege engines and siege towers on higher ground and get them better shot at the walls. These mounds were also built to enable battering rams to strike at the city walls as well. The Macedonians also uh, tunneled under the walls of the city, a task which was made easier by the softness of the sand in contrast to the difficulties they'd have with the siege towers. As usual during a siege, as these attempts at breaching the walls were going on, you know, a very lengthy endeavor, they'd have to build the uh, like ramping little hillocks they were building, they'd have to date and tunnel under the walls time-consuming endeavors. And so we got all this going on. The army would also pretty consistently probe the city for weaknesses, trying to scale the walls and find gaps in the defenses to sneak into. Before one such assault, Alexander was leading a sacrifice when a bird dropped something on his head. Now, our ancient sources are a little unclear on whether this was an eagle or a raven, and whether the something dropped was some dirt, or whether the bird took a shit on Alexander's head. But I gotta find I gotta say, I find it hard to believe a bird was carrying dirt. I've never seen a bird carry dirt. Not to say it's impossible, not to say it didn't happen. But assuming this story wasn't just invented whole cloth, I gotta I believe our dude was shit on by a bird, which is tough. You know, I actually, one time I was on vacation eating a sandwich, bird got me right on the shoulder. It sucks, it's not ideal. Uh, been there, Alexander. That's all I gotta say. Not on my head, but, you know, still. I feel your pain, brother. Regardless of what happened, the seer Aristander put some spin on this omen and said that it meant and said that it meant the city would be taken, but said that Alexander should be cautious and not go into battle that day. Now, later in the day, the forces of Gaza led a fierce counterattack against the, against the besieging against the besieging Macedonians. 
driving them from one of the siege towers and attempting to burn it down. Leading a counter-counter-attack, Alexander launched into battle with a force of Hypacipus, fighting a fierce engagement with the defenders. Our guy Alexander, in the middle of fierce combat previously worn by a seer, gotta be careful, nearly killed by one of the Arab mercenaries who was serving Gaza as a defender, and so he apparently pretended to surrender he apparently pretended to surrender to Alexander, but then fate surrender swings his blade at the king's neck, meaning to take off his head. Alexander's faster cuts off the man's hand. Thinking that this was the danger indicated by Aristander, Alexander continues fighting with his men. This turned out to be a mistake because he was shot with an arrow or bolt that struck through his shield and penetrated his armor into Alexander's shoulder. Despite the wound, Alexander continued fighting, but eventually began bleeding heavily and was carried off the field by his men as he began to near unconsciousness. This side note here is why I always find it weird that all the way up to like semi-serious authors and historians will claim Alexander never lost a battle. In these sieges alone, we did a few battles that he lost. There's the issues with the guerrillas later on in the campaigns, and there's like... You know, even in the battle against the Illyrians, he had to withdraw briefly and then was able to surprise and attack them later in the day. But like, you know, not necessarily a loss, but not a resounding victory, not a victory for a guy at first. And he didn't lose the major battles and he never suffered like a serious setback. But to be like, guy was 82 and 0, not quite true in my book. It's just like, we don't need to act like our dude was invulnerable. I think it diminishes his legend somewhat because it makes him seem inevitable. And like he was just lucky when really there's a lot of skill, there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of administration going on behind the scenes. And it wasn't just like he was kissed by the gods and to do no wrong. I think that it makes him more impressive that he did suffer these minor setbacks and was able to avoid the larger ones. And that by keeping, I don't know, it's sort of like a weird kind of like Tom Brady type thing because Brady to my eye, he's so head and shoulders above any other quarterback that as much as I dislike him, it's pretty much impossible to argue that someone else was the dope. And I think because Tom Brady is so far and above everybody else, it kind of diminishes how impressive he is because he's like, it's so unrealistic how good he was that you can't really wrap your mind around it. And I think Alexander has sort of a similar thing going on with some modern historians who are like, not as moved by him. And also, he did have some real flaws. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling. Side tangent over here. The wound Alexander suffers lingers with him for a few weeks, giving time for the siege to continue. We get further progress made on the mound surrounding the city, the mining underneath the walls, and this allows time for Hephaestion to arrive with the more robust siege towers from Tyre. The rams and siege engines the rams and siege engines kept a constant flow of pressure on the walls. The mines were completed and filled with combustible materials, which led to sections of the walls catching on fire and burning down once the materials were lit. But despite this and the you know, constant bombardment, things are looking dire. Battis and his men fought valiantly, repelling three determined attacks by the Macedonians. But eventually, on the fourth attack, they were overwhelmed. Our dude, Tertius, says that Alexander was recovered enough from his injury to take part in this fighting, but was wounded once more after being struck by a rock on his leg. But this was a much more minor wound, 
Adrian Goldsworthy called it like a scratcher of bruise. So, you know, not nothing major for our dude. Again, as was typical for the time, the besieged city was treated very harshly. This was, you know, on the extreme end of the harsh treatment, the male inhabitants of the city were put to the sword, executed, massacred. The women and children were sold into slavery, valuables looted, and locals from outside the city were sent in to repopulate after this destruction. Although this was pretty typical for the time, modern historians often list this as Alexander setting another example for the region of what would happen to cities who didn't capitulate peacefully, and this might be a result of the story Tertius tells of Battus' fate. Battus, who once again was the commander of Gaza's defenses, was captured alive after the battle and brought before Alexander. Battus was supposed to have fought valiantly to the very end, collapsing under the weight of numerous wounds and exhaustion. And now, standing before the king, he kept silent, arrogantly refusing to speak and ignoring the insults hurled at him by the king as he grew more and more infuriated. Since he refused to submit or beg for mercy, Alexander flew into a rage and ordered him bound by his feet and then a hole like put into his Achilles and rope put through those holes and he was tied to a chariot and dragged all around the city until he died. Now if this occurred, it was clearly an homage to Alexander's ancestor Achilles' treatment of Hector's corpse in the Iliad. But this would be even more brutal because Battus was alive when it occurred. Now, Tertius notes that if this did happen, it was out of character for Alexander, who typically treated enemies, and especially enemy commanders who conducted themselves no nobly and bravely. Ten generally he had more respect for them than this. And Arian doesn't mention the story at all, and nor does Plutarch, which would be kind of weird if it did happen. For my part, I'm not inclined to believe this story for a few reasons. Number one, like Tertius mentioned, it was out of character when compared to how he typically dealt with skilled, competent, and brave commanders who opposed him. Even in India, which is much later on when Alexander is at the height of his bloodlust, he showed mercy and even extended honors to Porus after the Battle of the Hydaspes. Now, maybe, you know, Battus, not worthy of that same respect in his eyes, he wasn't to our knowledge, a noble, he wasn't a prince, he wasn't a king. And so maybe Alexander was, you know, he's like, this guy's basically an upchump peasant. He's, Alexander's in a bad mood from his injuries. Maybe some other factors lost to history play a role in the, in the decision to inflict this harsh punish, punishment on Battus. But I'm still not buying it myself. Me, myself, personally. Another reason for my lack of belief in this is that Alexander, our dude fucking loved the Iliad. And he compared himself to his ancestor Achilles, obviously. He compared Hephaestion to Patrocles. They went to the site believed to be Troy, sacrificed at the respective temples. Some stories say consciously emulating the heroes and having a race there, Alexander and his companions. There's on and on, like all this conscious emulation of Achilles and the Iliad. He was also very conscious of history and the examples he would be setting when he did various things and would like go out of his way to copy myths and like when he did the spear toss land thing our spear one land when he tossed a spear when crossing into asia and you know so he loves history he loved the iliad he carried an annotated copy aristotle gave him in a special box <laughs> he kept it under his pillow with a dagger so given that and the fact we know that like i said dude was a student of history he had a very lofty opinion of himself and his place in history i think he would surely be aware that if he did this, you know, 
treated Battis, who was, as far as we know, not some super significant figure besides this, as Achilles treated Hector, it would be elevating him. And I just don't know if Alexander would have regarded Battis enough to have chosen him as the Hector to his Achilles and punished him so harshly. Now, this is probably bad history by me. I could be unaware of maybe this was a fairly, this was like a more common punishment than we know. Uh, but, you know, maybe I'm going too far and trying to like psychoanalyze a dude who we have third-hand sources hundreds of years removed from his life for. But it just doesn't seem like something he would do. Now, maybe if he cornered Darius or high-ranking Persian at this point, or like a skilled fighter who was like 1v1 me, bro, and then they had some epic combat and this happened, I could see it. But it just, you know, given the out-of-character nature of it and the emulating Achilles of it all, I just think the story may have been invented later on. It's certainly possible that the sources wanted to flat that the sources who wanted to flatter Alexander left it out. And that the surviving sources besides Tertius relied on those sources who had left it out and not the sources that Tertius relied upon that had it in. But it does seem strange to me that Plutarch, who was mostly concerned with Alexander as a person, would leave it out. Again, definitely could have happened. I'm just saying I'm not a believer in it. <clears throat> but, listen, I told you guys it would be quick. That's the Siege of Gaza for us. It lasted around two months bringing 332 BCE nearly to a close. Pretty busy month for Alexander. A pretty busy year for Alexander that would have him winning two relatively difficult sieges and go a long way to proving his status following his defeat of Darius III at Issus. This siege, while not captured in as much detail as the siege of, of Tyre, represents another time Alexander was forced to adapt to the uniqueness of the defenses of the city he was facing. This time, you know, not an island, but a raised hill. And much as he raised, much as he made Tyre no longer an island, bringing the land to its shores, and also the other innovations that we covered last time, at Gaza, he raised hills around the hill, removing the height advantage, and he also dug tunnels under the walls to bring them crashing down. The softness of the soil forced him to adapt, and once again, he found himself up to the task. As always, sieges were difficult affairs, and his ability to keep his forces motivated during these construction projects and prepared for the fight that Tom also speaks well of him. Now, following the siege of Gaza, the path to Egypt lay open to him, and he advanced into the wondrous nation. We have a whole episode coming up on what he did up, it's up to, including a visit to an oracle, but that's mostly a story for another time. What we need to know here and now to get us to next week's episode is this. The Egyptian border town of Pelisium was about 130 miles away crossed the Sinai Desert from Gaza, and Alexander and the Macedonians marched there in about a week, supporting Gaza. The crowds there, enthusiastic, gave the Macedonians a huge greeting. Egyptians were not fans of Persians, by the by. And Darius's governor handed the country over to Alexander without a fight. Alexander became pharaoh, showed great respect for the Egyptians and their priestly caste, was always a Greek king ruling in Egypt. He also laid the foundation for his most famous Alexandria. He used breadcrumbs, which were then eaten by birds, which was decried as an omen that the city would be great and feed many people. Near the end of 332 BCE, or the beginning of 331 BCE, he marched out to the Siwa Oracle. More on that in a later episode. 
During the time in Egypt, Parmenio's youngest son, Hector, would die in a boating accident, much to Alexander's chagrin, because the pair were friends. But finally, in April 331 BCE, he set out from Egypt. Big old party, big old festival at Tyre. There may have been another embassy or letter from Darius at this juncture. More negotiations declined by Alexander. Following the festivals and mating preparations, Alexander set out to hunt Darius III. But that is a story for next week, when we will be covering the second and final of the great battles between Darius and Alexander, the Battle of Gagamela. So, quick little episode for us today, hopefully a fun one, hopefully a good one. But as always, remember to follow the show on social media, Obsessed Podcast on Instagram, HITO Podcast on Twitter. If you search Obsessed, it should just come up. Twilight Zone type logo, pineapple in the middle of it. More importantly, be sure to drop those five-star ratings and reviews wherever you find yourself listening to sweet, sweet Timbra of my voice. So, until next time, remember, he's self-aware. He's a funky duck. He gave the first TED Talk. He's a funky duck. And I will catch y'all on the flip.